Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the X-rated films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are talking about Scooter McRae's sophomore film, his follow-up to Shatter Dead, and that's 1999's 16 Tongues, just recently released on Blu-ray for the first time. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can find 1999's 16 Tongues on Blu-ray. Luke, this this might be like one of three titles we've covered that you can buy from Walmart, which is bizarre if you are familiar with the content. No, man, I'm telling you, you can get anything at Walmart.com. Like, not that I'm suggesting you order from them. I'm not. But they have it. The avant-garde has been co-opted by the mainstream. I'm sorry. With all that said, like, I'm glad that this movie is available. Like, I'm glad Scooter McRae is able to get this released. Saturn's core put it out. Mainstream distributors are are carrying it. And as weird as that is for, like, the avant-garde to be mainstream, I do think it's good for the directors and the creators. And so that's a positive thing. I'm just saying, imagine this on a Walmart DVD display slammed between two Marvel films and some kid picks this up on accident. Well, I'd actually rather they be watching this, as weird as that sounds. <laughs> but yeah, this, uh, this is my obviously this is a first time watch for both of us. I just finished it a little while ago. So we're both fans of, of Scooter's first film, Shatter Dead. What'd you think of this as a follow-up? How many films has this guy made? Two full-length films. He's done some short films, which are available on the on the 16 Tongues Blu-ray, but I haven't watched them yet. So right off the bat, my first impression is, is when I watched Shattered It, I had no idea what I was going into. And after I watched it, I wasn't exactly sure what happened in the beginning until you read the back of the box when we were discussing it. And I went, oh, that makes sense. <clears throat> and, I'm, and I'm kind of convinced that that might be the ongoing theme for this man's films, because when you jump into this film without reading, what I'm assuming the back of the, of the box, you, it, it just feels like you got off at the wrong bus station and you don't have a phone. I mean, I'll read the back of the box to you in a moment if you want me to, but I I like that about his films. Um, I like that they you drop in in medias res, right? And you're not given any exposition, and so you've got to kind of feel out this world for yourself. But I think that works, and that's no, you know, I think about the first movie I think to compare this one to is Blade Runner. And Blade Runner does the same thing, right? It just drops you into the world and you gradually figure out what's going on within it and like what constitutes an android or um, whatever they're called, a replicant. And um, I I feel like we're figuring out the same sorts of things in this movie. So I think I inadvertently dodged your question, though. Like, how does this compare to Shattered Dead? Long story short, I appreciate Shattered Dead more than this one, but... It's kind of interesting where before we started recording this show, I would have watched a movie like this and probably have compared it to Cafe Flesh, 
and rated it about the same, <laughs> which is uh, like o- overly ambitious beyond its means and, uh, and, and the production value doesn't hold up. But like, I don't think that's the right mindset for these kinds of films. I, I, I think that you have to judge them within like the subculture that they're created right like that this art house feel like how does it how does it live up as an art house film so in other words you've just been corrupted by the content of the show probably yes okay um, so, so art house cyberpunk uh, let, let's just start with this this is a very unfamiliar territory this is very unfamiliar territory for me this is out this is art tour cyberpunk i guess it's like softcore pornography <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't even call it that. Really, the I, I don't even think the penises we see are real. No, it's not. <laughs> so so I'm not sure how much you can qualify that as like any kind of pornography. But here, let me read you the back of the box. And by the way, folks, I apologize for my voice. I know it's atrociously squeaky right now, but um, I just have a cold. So here's the back of the box. It says Adrian Torque is a renegade cop who has lost more than half of his skin in a terrorist explosion. His missing flesh has been replaced with the tongue meat recovered from the 16 victims that died during the tragedy. Ginny Chin Chin is a genetically engineered prostitute assassin chasing down the scientist who implanted her sex organs under the folds of her eyelids. Alex Silence is a wearied computer hacker hunt- hunting through the pornographic abyss of cyberspace for the identity of her brother's killer. At a rundown SM hotel purgatory, where even the strangest desires can be met for a price, the trajectories of this star crossed trio intersect in a claustrophobic collision of sex, blood, bullets, and a personal apocalypse. So does that Yo. shed any light for you? Oh, no. I mean, I uh, unlike Shatter Dead, I think you can actually figure out what the fuck is going on by just watching the film. Um, but trying to get your bearings when you're dropped into the beginning with no context is, I guess that's just part of the scooter experience. You know, just like with Shatter Dead, I, 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 I agree and I like that about it it kind of lulls me into a weird hypnotic state. It's almost like waking, like you fall asleep and then you wake up in the middle of a dream, right? And you don't know quite what's going on. You don't know the rules of the dream world. Like David Lynch makes entire movies like this. And that's how I feel about these, that in the beginning, at least, you're feeling your way around this new dream world. And in the process, you kind of get sucked into it. It's very attention graphic. All right, so we're two for two films now where um he does a re- really good job of like establishing inter-universe rules within these narratives and they tend to be things that are like far out there like not th- like so if anything I'm not a, like a big cyberpunk junkie but if everything cyberpunk and futuresque that I've seen I've never once heard of a fucking uh genetically engineered human having clitorises under her eyelids to keep her um, like aggression down so that the, her, her fucking assassin droid instincts don't kick in and start overkilling people. 
<laughs> like these are that's a very unique idea and i don't even care if it's practical that, that's, that's probably how you can describe this entire film's like in in universe story right like you don't give a shit if it's practical who the fuck would bother spending the financial resources to bring one man back from the dead to be a police officer by specifically grafting tongues to their body to 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 save their life like to re- to resurrect them essentially no no corporation's going to pump out the amount of money to do that unless this man was like a, a president or some very important official this is just some guy it, like, and, it, but you don't care you don't care about the practicality of any of that when you're watching this film no first it's like bewilderingly creative and so i'm i'm on board just because of that but secondly it's just like it's just like what david cronenberg does where Yes, he's doing impractical things with flesh, with bodies, with sort of the mechanics of and organics of the world. But that that has a deeper thematic purpose. It's not just arbitrary, right? Like it feeds into the themes of the film and what the film's trying to do for us. And so I can appreciate it on that level. Let's talk briefly about the actors. So the three main actors are Jane Chase, who plays Jenny, Crawford James, who plays Adrian, and Alice Liu, who plays Alec. Uh, They've all been in other stuff, but, you know, in smaller parts, like lots of they're basically character actors. What do you think of their performances? I think the the girl who or the actress who played the assassin was was probably the best of the film. Yeah, I think she's pretty good. Um, the the police officer, Adrian, um, he his his acting was passable until he was supposed to be angry, and then I wasn't really convinced. <laughs> okay, but everything else was fine. Um, and then I don't think the hacker really had a chance to to really shine in this film. I feel like she got the short end of the stick throughout the entire script. Well, hey, any moment she had where she was being emotional, she was also being electrocuted. So it's kind of hard to act in that setting. I know. I mean, just think like, uh, just think about her position as being directed in this film where it's like, yes, you're just going to be gyrating in the corner of this dingy <laughs> hotel room for about 20 minutes. I will say, okay, so like Crawford James, who plays Adrian, he's not always the most believable in terms of his acting, but that almost doesn't matter to me because he fits into this world. Like he he looks like he belongs. Like it's obviously makeup, but it looks pretty cool. The tongues that are grafted on him, like it looks pretty good, I think. And just like his acting, even though we can tell it's fake, it does add to the aesthetic. It does fit. And so he doesn't detract from the film, even if he's not like a hugely versatile actor. Agreed. And I think Alice Liu, who plays Alec, the hack, the, uh, the hacker, uh, I think she's pretty, you know, for what we see, she's pretty decent. But I also think it's really cool. She sings the song that plays over the end credits which I actually think is a pretty fucking cool song. Yeah, 
the the one thing I really did notice during the credits, well, two things is that one, there's one guy who's credited as piss lover <laughs> and there's another member on the staff credited as, as the illegal pyrotechnician, which makes me <laughs> believe that possibly whoever was in charge of detonating, I'm assuming like a pops and stuff for the firearm fight at the end was probably not licensed to do that sort of thing. I would think that was the description of the character. Was there like a fireworks lover in the film? Oh no, this isn't cast. This this is in like the later, the deep in the credits. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. I don't know. But hey, they got away with it. That's what's important. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the opening credits? I, th- I think it might have been the best sh- cinematography of the whole film. It's beautifully done. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I'm glad we're in agreement. Okay. Yeah. So the opening credits, you see sort of still photography of various body parts in close up, and it's filmed beautifully. Um, the cinematography is gorgeous, and it's very evocative. It instantly puts you in a particular mood that I think is fitting for the rest of the film. On the other hand, it's kind of ironic, right? Because over the opening credits, we get this nudity that's filmed artfully. But in the rest of the film, nudity is used as like cheap pornography that we're supposed to think is cheap pornography, right? And so that's an interesting contrast. Do you think this credit sequence is supposed to be showing something like maybe the creation of, say, one of these... uh... You know, you don't want to call them robots because they're not robots. This is like genetic engineering that's going on. Like the assassin is discussed as being engineered, but she's not a robot. She was actually hatched was the term that when you when you see her bio information pull up. Yeah, I think like a, a process of that. I think they're entirely organic. I think it's like Brave New World where they're grown in test tubes and they can be engineered, but they're still entirely organic. But it once we're into the actual film, we probably have the most brutal scene in the film, which has one of our main characters, Adrian, uh, abusing a prisoner. I was, um, I don't know, this scene was tough for me. This film does get off to a little bit of a rough start. I don't know if all this was necessary, but if if Scooter here is just trying to shock us, then I would say this is probably um, a, a mission success. Basically, he has this prisoner who has like a leather gimp mask on and he forces him to give him a blowjob before shooting him in the head. And we see it all in like graphic detail. Um, although, I mean, it's still simulated. Don't it, it? We're not watching hardcore, but it's it is graphically shown. And uh, I guess trigger warning for the episode: we're definitely going to be talking about sexually disturbing content. So, I wouldn't. I won't go as far so far as to say that I don't think this scene should have been here. I actually think it does a pretty good job of establishing like who Adrian is or at least who one of Adrian's personalities is. Um, but it's it's distasteful. <laughs> distasteful is a good word for it. And perfectly on brand for us, the completely late trigger warning. 
Oh, of course. I I feel like that the show is it, it. All right, perennial trigger warning. Right, it's just ongoing. It ought to be anyway. So the start of this movie, I wasn't sure if this actually happened. I'm still not sure if this actually happened or if it was possibly a dream. Because immediately after this scene, we have Adrian waking up in his hotel room. We do have several dream sequences that and and a lot of sexual dreaming. So I don't. Okay, so here's why. I was about to say, maybe it doesn't matter. And then I was like, no, it's definitely ethically different if you rape somebody in the mouth in real life versus in a dream, right? Like, that's that's a profound difference. But what I don't think is different in this case is I think Adrian would do that. I don't think that's like something that is deep in his unconscious id right that that is something he would do we should mention that he's doing all this while wearing his badge oh indeed yes but he's not listed as a police officer not yet no so but but pretty soon in that scene where he's waking up we start to hear his voiceover and we're gonna get voiceover narration from him and our two other main characters what did you think of the voiceovers I think this is probably the weakest part of the film. Uh, I don't think either of us are big fans of voiceovers. I'm not a filmmaker, but maybe there was a different way to convey these things without relying so heavily on voiceovers. I went but, back. I went back and forth. Yeah, I'm iffy on it. If You're right. Is, if this is one of the worst thing is things you can say about the film, like that's. That's not that bad. <laughs> no, and I think it's well done. Um, I'm normally not a voiceover fan. In this case, there are certain things that you couldn't convey without it. So, for example, some of the characters are psychic, and they get into, like, psychic conversations with one another. That wouldn't be possible if you didn't do the voiceover, or at least not to the extent that it's shown to us. Um, That's not, like, technically a voiceover. A voiceover specifically is... Uh, tied to the narrative itself some guys telling you what's going on but we also have scenes where like adrian seems to have conversations between various personalities like would you consider that voiceover no i think it's voiceover in in this context is specifically something that drives the narrative defines a backstory where they're kind of like talking to the viewer in a way indirectly to, to tell you what's going on, to fill you in. So when Adrian says, and I particularly love this quote, justice is a delicate thing, but its servants cannot be so delicate. <laughs> is that voiceover? Well, in that case, he's talking to the, to the audience in a way, right? Because he's musing. He's musing his thoughts. Right. See, I think all this is voiceover. I would all of this I normally have a problem with because I think it's lazy, right? But there are things one you can win me over if it's really well done or it's really well written. Woody Allen gets away with this sometimes. And I think this borders on that because it has lines like that that I actually think are really well written and like I enjoy hearing them. So 
he kind of won me over there. I also think it's kind of necessitated by certain aspects of the plot. But yeah, normally not a fan. When we first meet our, I guess, main, main character, Jenny, uh, she is describing a dream that she had to us where she was really nervous because she had to give this big speech. And so, and she didn't know what to do with her hands while she was speaking. So she has both her arms removed. This was very interesting. Did you think it was meaningful? In a world where human bodies can be augmented, replaced, and changed out seemingly um, so inconsequentially, I think this kind of just drives home the idea that you'd be okay with losing your arms because you can eventually put them back on at some point. That's interesting. I never thought of that. I also think it it shows that there it that one she views body parts in terms of their usefulness, right? That her arms, what she's most worried about is what is she going to do with her hands? Not the fact that she has hands or not, but does she know what to do with them? And I think that could say something profound about her character in general and in the way that she uses her body, right? She uses her body for as, transactionally, and that could be part of that same thing. Like, what value is a body if you don't use it for this, if you don't use it transactionally? She is a commercial product, right? And it's not stated in the film whether, uh, at, at what point was she born, right? Was she developed like from an embryo and then like grew up, had like a childhood in some sort of like sterile industrial facility until they trained her to be what she is? Or did she just pop out as like a mid 20 something woman that already had ingrained in her brain all of these like uh, processes and uh, thoughts and memories that would drive her to function the way that she was designed to function? So I would kind of see that like anything that seems really strange about her was probably genetically engineered to be there by whoever created her in the first place. I she's a I product. Think, I think what what the movie owes the most like intellectual inspiration to is Blade Runner, in which case the replicants are made as adults, like they're hatched like that. Um, but also Brave New World, in which people do grow up through childhood and are specially trained and, you know, brainwashed into doing what they're meant to do in society. I imagined as I was watching the film, the latter. I imagined that she grew up and had a childhood and everything, but I, I could be wrong. The only thing we know is that she says at one point something like, I never had an actual dad, but we don't really know what it is she did have, if anything. Later in the film, we have uh, in two instances characters that are uh, VR surfing cyberspace <laughs> and in the process come up on um, information on the characters. And uh, we do see like the assassins kind of like driver's license registration, that sort of thing, their identification. And under birth status, it says aborted. <laughs> 
out of 75 siblings. I don't know the significance of that, but it's written down somewhere. <laughs> well, I think I think what that's getting at is like so the the guy who has the 16 tongues on him, he technically died too, he said. He was brought back to life. And so I wonder if she was aborted and so she ceased to be a living human and instead they had she became property and they could do whatever to her. That sounds like a corporate loophole that'll exist in like 25, 30 years. Of course, I think this movie takes place in the distant future of 2009. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, um, I do think it works, though, as kind of like an alternative future. It feels very much like the late 90s, early 2000s as you're watching it. I'm not even sure why, but it made me very it very much put me back in that time period. And so it makes sense to me to think, well, this is what they thought the future might be like in 20 years. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any way in hell technology is going to progress this fast in 10 years. Especially well, since nowadays there's like built-in obsolescence and intentional holding back of of technological advancements by corporations because they don't want to outgrow their potential uh their potential sales right they want to make sure they really milk each step of the tech ladder up each upgrade incrementally but then there's in intentionally um clunky things in the movie like they can't just tap their credit cards the way we can they have like this this big heavy credit card machine that they have to slide through things it's much more complex than it needs to be. This is the risk of any sci-fi film, right? Like, there's no way anybody's going to predict what what is going to exist 20, 30 years in the future. So you just have to take your best crack at it. But it does provide this really cool aesthetic of, um, like, retrofuturism. Like, you see this in Alien, right? Like, you have this giant spaceship, like you know almost a thousand years in the future and it's using crt monitors and like dos command prompts and i guess blade runner had that too they had crts and <laughs> scanning and that sort of thing also voice blade runner had voiceovers <laughs> just like this one. Oh, the original did yeah. yeah the original did i'm not a fan of that version but let's talk about the scene where they both go to get ice what did you think of our heroine's outfit? I'm referring, of course, to the bag. It's a raincoat, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. She's about to go out in the hall and she puts on, it's kind of like a poncho, but it's it's translucent and mostly transparent, so you can see through it. So it's it doesn't actually work as cover. At one point, she says that she's preserving her sweat because she can't afford water. I think that was a joke. I'm not sure. I wouldn't take that as a joke. And <laughs> this place is pretty, uh, pretty depressing. Uh, also, you know, you know wh who else wore uh, transparent raincoats out in, in, in the middle of the city? There is a translucent uh, or a transparent raincoat in Blade Runner. In Blade Runner, yes. 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 Same, same thing. Daryl yeah. Hannah is wearing one. Daryl Hannah. But Daryl well, Hannah had other things on with it. Um, this this character does not. It's just the poncho thing. 
but, the- but honestly it, in this environment it doesn't seem immodest at all nothing seems immodest in this film because pornography is ubiquitous it's everywhere it's on the walls it's on the television and the television can't be turned off unless you pay for it to be turned off yeah it's very this seemed a very brave new world inspired to me the like constant assault of pleasure and if you're not being pleasured you're not being distracted and you need to be distracted so that you're complacent with the misery around you that's kind of how i took that there's a very brief scene where adrian is on the phone with the front desk saying complaining about the television and uh the employee is first explains how you know he needs to turn it off by slotting his credit card through the giant reader but then um starts to explain why it's actually more cost effective for the company to make it so that the 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 guests have to turn the tv off themselves using their credit card he like he hangs up in the middle of it yeah but i I thought that was spot on for this it's clever it's really clever and funny um even if it's like, even if it would be horrid in real life, right? It's funny in the movie. Um, but I don't think things would ever get to this point. Maybe I'm saying this is a position of ignorance, but I just never see society getting to this point. This is such a perversion of how extreme this aspect of everybody must be pleasured will be, like, can be. I don't think it would ever like take this form. It's not practical. But again, I don't care as far as this film. I just don't see it ever happening for real. I can definitely see it happening in certain locations, like certain urban centers. I can imagine being like this. It's not that far off if you go to some cities and walk through their sex district. Like, it, you see stuff like this for sure. Especially like go up to Canada, go to Montreal and like walk by um, sex shops where you see very, very... Uh, provocative things that you would not see in the United States. And I don't know, this doesn't seem that far off. So you're saying there'd be televisions that can't be turned off unless you slot your credit card through them? Mm, I mean, I think that that's probably, that's more of like a, a jokey, ironic twist on what would be the reality. Like that's satire, right? That's, <laughs> I don't think that's real prediction. I think it's satire, but I could see uh, sex being this ubiquitous, this in your face for sure. Now, I don't know if you would see anything quite like the ice maker that Adrian and Jenny are both getting ice from that resembles an ass that's pooping out ice. I don't know. What'd you think of it? There's a sign on the ice maker that says low in algae, low in toxins. I really appreciate the small details like that in this movie. It kind of reminded me, like, the idea of the ice maker and the look of it kind of reminded me of Forbidden Zone. <laughs> yeah, that's spot on. Yeah. I wonder if I wonder if Scooter was really paying homage or not. Oh, I just realized the ice maker always, also says 92% pure water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that for sure. Oh, All right, so... Tell me this. Is it ever explained why Adrian is at the hotel? Because it seems like he doesn't really want to be here. I thought he lived there kind of full time. I got the impression he hasn't been here for that long. 
No, I think he's like a new resident, but I think he's I think this is the kind of hotel you end up living in. Well, like the reason Alec and Jenny are here are because of him. They are following him. Right. And I think this is just where he happens to be living. But I don't know. I also imagined that he's gotten into some trouble as a cop, right? And uh, so he might have to kind of live down low. Oh, and you also have to use your credit card to um, to take a shower. Oh, right? did you? Oh, my God. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it, because um, there's a scene where we see Jenny take a shower and her girlfriend, Alec, has to scan her credit card so that she's able to get the water on. And the shower head is like made of PVC instead of any kind of metal. Like there's no aesthetic property to it at all. It's just functional. I don't know. That was interesting to me. Oh, and she's being filmed in the shower. Yeah. So there's no, there's no attention is ever brought to it again. Just, hey, this is happening. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, because we, we talked about with when we watched Shatter Dead, we talked some about to what extent was it gratuitous? Do you think that that this shower scene is gratuitous or do you think that it contributes to the story? Maybe it's partly because we're uh, again, we're kind of like desensitized that this kind of cinema but nothing here really seemed gratuitous to me because of the setting. You know, it's all in your face. It doesn't feel like it's trying to be erotic. Although there's a sex act in the first scene, most people wouldn't see that as erotic. No. <laughs> most people would see it as frightening. You know, the two actresses here are nude for maybe 90% of the time, <laughs> if you yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. And, but I... I don't know. I didn't see it as exploitative at all. It just seemed like natural in the setting and, and the world that, that Scooter had set up here. All right. I totally agree. I just was curious what you thought. There's a scene where, all right, first of all, I don't know why these two girls are together. Like, they don't seem like they like each other. There isn't, they are kind of lacking uh, romantic chemistry. But for a film that, that came out in 1999, this feels like it has the the character creation of a film 20 years before it, like, or 20 years later, uh, because we have two lesbians, minorities, and, uh, and I mean, I guess all the characters are minorities, but like the, the, the depiction of sexuality is just so much more liberal than what was seen at the time in 1999. It, it was... I was just thinking what a contrast it is between Scooter McRae in his films and Fred Olin Ray in his films. Like we talked about Jacko in the shower scene with Linnea Quigley. And like the only reason that shower scene is in Jacko is because Fred Olin Ray like wants to show tits for a while. Right. I don't, I get the sense that Scooter McRae is obviously writing and directing and making films that have really explicit sexual content. Like, obviously, that's something he's interested in exploring. But he seems to explore it in an actual, interesting, thematic way, non-exploitative way. He's not doing it just for the sake of showing us tits. He's doing it because it shows us tits and it actually he's he actually wants to say something about the body and about the humans relationships with their bodies it's very easy like post 2020 
to take a script like this for granted because something like this would be more common now like these character relationships 1999 not so much with that said uh, the characters are not likable i don't think and i think i even read a quote with scooter where he said that you know part of his part of the impetus or idea for this movie was how could you like how could you play around with the idea of unlikable protagonist and you know having to give your could you give your loyalty to characters that you know disgust you and i think there's some of that here or did you find any of the characters like really sympathetic everyone's flawed but i don't think everyone is completely unlikable like the assassin at least try like made uh made changes to her i don't know like her daily regimen to ensure that she wouldn't accidentally domestically murder her partner <laughs> and like that's got to count for something in this like dank cruel world maybe i misunderstood this and it's partially i had trouble hearing some of the dialogue but in the beginning scene between um, Alec and Jenny, is Jenny saying that she that when Alec menstruates that that satisfies her craving for death? Is that what she's saying? So Jenny has been programmed to desire contact with blood. So anything that exposes her to blood is going to quell that bloodlust that that urge to kill which she is trying to desperately avoid this is this is a genetically programmed assassin who is trying to fight her protocols her programming because she doesn't want to do that anymore she doesn't want to be this product and the only way she can see to try to quell those urges is by being exposed to blood in situations that don't involve murdering other people and also you know um eyelid clits right <laughs> so no oh my God. it's so confusing in the beginning when she is in the shower and she <laughs> just has her face in the shower and just starts orgasming and it's like <laughs> you know i'm just gonna take this for face value you don't find out what's going on until like another 20 minutes later in my notes, I was like, uh, apparently she masturbates with her eyes. <laughs> I, I don't know what's happening. But yeah, we find out eventually. But it makes, I'm saying this very loosely, it makes sense. <laughs> there is internal logic. But yeah, she we, we there's a scene where she fantasizes about killing her girlfriend. And at this point, we don't really know why yet. We haven't heard her explanation of her desires. But it goes from her imagining shooting her which is really cool by the way it's filmed in slow motion and it's really well done um but then when it's back to reality she's saying like it's not my fault i'm programmed this way and she says she can't wait for the blood to come uh speaking about i think her girlfriend's period so the girlfriend says well i understand and but she, she doesn't really Right. She it, it kind of suggests that she gets off on the idea that her girlfriend is going out and seducing and killing people. But is that the way you got you took it? Uh, I didn't get that necessarily. These are just two very flawed people who are licking each other's wounds. 
they're sticking with each other because the if the alternative is being alone in in this bizarro world uh i think you're just going to kind of put up with who, who will tolerate your company because along with this uh, you know uh bloodthirsty assassin sex ro- sex assassin we have um a hacker who uses a narcotic to increase her I guess mental ability to connect with the with the network. So she is essentially a junkie. But I and, got I I thought this was sexual for her too. Like I thought when this that this was I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I took it as a sexual thing. It could be and I just missed it, but I didn't get that impression. Mm, interesting. For, for me it, it's mostly these are two damaged people just trying to make the best of a bad situation because under normal circumstances, I don't, well, maybe there isn't a normal anymore, but like normal people would probably want nothing to do with either of these people because one is a severe drug addict and the other is potentially a murderer. Uh, I think she's definitely, I think she's definitely nymphomaniac murderer. Yeah. I think she's definitely a murderer. Let's talk about the scene where she lets the old uh, homeless guy touch her in exchange for a drink of his whiskey. What do you think of this scene? It seems like their relationship is set up so that it's open, right? Or at the very least, it seems like uh, relationship ethics have declined to a point where, well, I don't know if decline is necessarily the word, have changed to the point where one partner can go out and superfluously, um, you know, have sexual relations for personal commercial value with others. And it doesn't uh, taint the status of that existing relationship. I, I, I took that as I thought that was unique to this couple. I thought it was Alex saying, I understand that you have this internal need to seduce and kill people and like i understand if you have to go do it but i didn't take that as something generally true of people so maybe that's something i looked too much into but yeah she goes wandering the hallways and finds a homeless grandpa just laying on the floor and uh he is obviously very interested and in exchange for fondling he cans her a flask which Honestly, I would not trust a pocket flask from a homeless guy sitting in a hallway, but whatever. She takes it, takes a swig. He's feeling her. And in the process, she hears his voice in her mind when she is taught, when she is musing about whether he fantasizes about doing this to his, to like younger relatives. He responds like, I would never hurt my granddaughter this way. Or I would never do this to my granddaughter. So, yeah, I actually think there's a lot going on here. But let's start with, for Jenny, I guess the the physical intrusion, whether it's because it's physical or whether be, it, or whether it's because she gave consent, that doesn't bother her. The mental intrusion does. The fact that he is reading her mind or speaking through her mind without her consent. That's interesting to me. Like that rings true that someone would be profoundly bothered by that, even if they weren't bothered by the physical touch. It also shows you that even this blow on the social ladder 
there is a group that is still lower than where she is right now. Well, I think she clearly has something that everyone desires, right? And she uses that to her advantage. The fact that her body is a kind of commodity or she allows it to be a kind of commodity. Um, society has made it a commodity. And I think she just understands that, that like, this is something I can trade. I want to drink and this guy wants to fuel me up. Like it's, it's fair trade. Right. But once she realizes that he is reading her mind, that he is speaking to her directly, she reacts very emotionally, very directly, immediately gets up, breaks the connection, um, and drops what's probably my favorite line in the, the whole movie, which is, it's one thing to be born a fuck up, another thing to let the whole world know about it. <laughs> she she kind of outs this guy and I'm assuming um, psychics in general as like a persecuted class in, in this universe, this world. Yeah. I thought that must be the make the case that it was seen as like a deformity rather than a gift. So this launches her into a homicidal rage. I mean, she already had the urge to kill, I guess. And so she goes looking for Adrian. Do you, so at this point, she does not know that Adrian killed her girlfriend's brother and that he is who they've been hunting. She just knows that he's a guy she ran into in the hall and that he's under the strange looking. And now I was under the impression she was aware. Oh, I didn't think so. Because then later when um, when Alec tells her, oh, that's the guy, she's in disbelief and denies it. I don't remember the denial. Yeah, she she goes on a whole thing where she's like, it can't be true. It can't be him. I I would I can sense a murderer and he didn't seem like one. I thought that the denial was whether or not he was actually a police officer. Oh, no, I thought the denial was that he was a murderer. Oh, gosh. I don't know. It could be it could be that she knows he's the murderer or that she knows he's a cop or neither or both. I'm not sure. But it the way I took it was that she knew he was a cop once he told her. And that was surprising to her, but she accepts it. But she doesn't know that he's the one who killed her girlfriend's brother. But regardless, do you think she goes to him to kill him or for something else? I think it's for sexual release to quell the murderous... Uh programming i think that's what she's there for but it just so happens that he ejaculates blood and so it's like the best of both worlds he, so casually mentioned that yeah he just ejaculates all this blood <laughs> which really puts the first scene in more perspective right yeah right and, and okay so two things i want to mention about this scene one so the explanation for why he ejaculates blood is because the people who essentially resurrected him did not next necessarily want him to breed. <laughs> I couldn't so that tell was the, that was the compromise. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell if that was a sincere explanation or if he was joking, if that was like a sarcastic flippant remark. I, I just took everybody at face value in this film. I didn't try to read beyond anything. While they're while they're 
being sexual, he mentions that he can't have one piece of tongue touch another piece of tongue because he'll get a feedback loop that's incredibly painful. I didn't quite understand why this was the case. Uh, everything involving this tongue science is just absolute extreme bullshit. I would not really, <laughs> I would not really analyze it at all. <laughs> I mean, again, how would you repair a man who died in an explosion with 16 tongues? <laughs> it, don't, it don't matter, though. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all about the imagery. So I don't know. And, and, and obviously, Scooter wants us to see this man as being very tormented. And possibly the reason why he did kind of turn into a sadist. Because I got the impression that perhaps he wasn't always like this. That it wasn't... No. He, he turned into a monster that he became, you know, this this kind of person. I think he's been driven insane by the the Alec kind of describes it as if the because tongues are a muscle, they're invading his cells and taking over him. I don't know. I didn't quite follow this, but it sounded cool. She made it sound like that this was a regularly done procedure <laughs> and that it, it, she was very like Wikipedia about it. She was like, in cases where people have been restored with tongue flesh, um, it ends up progressing. It makes this uh, regressive bacteria spread throughout your body and slowly d d like erodes your mental state as the tongues are speaking to you. <laughs> but I develop was... personalities because, as you know, voices, we keep voices in the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, how I, you're not I, here for believability you're not here for that i took it as he was like all of these voices of these people who helped save him were speaking to him and whether that was literally their tongues talking or just psychologically he was like well all these other people died so that i could live and that knowledge is driving him insane like i think i think that's the figurative way to view it but like, imagine getting like a a kidney transplant from a furry and now you just have to go make a deviant art account <laughs> i don't remember registering my email why am i getting these i um over the weekend i happened to meet a woman who's a teacher at that school in michigan where parents were outraged that they thought they're putting litter boxes in the bathrooms for the kids <laughs> who identified as furries and uh yeah she was like she was like yeah that that definitely was not real like that wasn't happening but parents were up in arms about it um, I read somewhere, and I, I can't remember where now, but apparently Scooter came up with the idea of 16 Tongues after the song, the Tennessee Ernie Ford song, 16 Tons. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? No, but uh, what was play, it, a country song or something? Yeah, play some of the song, and I'll put it in here. So people say a man is made out of mud a poor man's made out of muscle and blood muscle and blood and skin and bones a mind that's weak and a back that's strong you load 16 tons what do you get 
of the day, older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Okay, I have heard I have heard this song before. I figured you had, but you can see the thematic connection, right? Yeah, I can see it. Like it's about owing your your soul to the man. Well, and what here are we're tongues. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but now I'll have that song stuck in my head for days because it is extremely catchy. But yeah, so our main character is um is real excited about this. She's like, well, maybe I can survive without killing anyone because now I have this uh ejaculation of blood that at my disposal that's why i think she's so shocked and disturbed when her girlfriend is like no this is the murderer because she thought she had forged a real connection here i don't know if i'd call this a connection but it really does seem like an out i i was wondering if the plot was gonna dive towards her abandoning alec for this guy just because of his uh unique ability yeah she says something i don't remember if she says it in her head or out loud but she says to alec um you'd say anything to keep me away from him or something like that so that in that was an insinuation to me that she didn't know he was a killer or she didn't believe alec that she that he was a killer but Adrian, meanwhile, is beating himself up over like letting her go because when he scanned, he scanned this barcode on her that revealed her to be wanted for murder and stuff. How did you interpret this like tension? What is it he's what is it he's trying to sort out? In a reality where anyone you could be talking to um, might have enough strength to bend you in half to break you in half i think it's kind of important that if you have the capability to do a quick history search on someone that it probably wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be a bad idea to do so especially when you're in a really seedy sex hotel where uh basically criminal activity is occurring between and behind every room but why do you think like, do you think he actually feels a compulsion to arrest her because he's an agent of the law? Or do you think he's so far corrupt that, like, that's not a real consideration? Well, I don't know who, which part is Adrian and which part is Adrian's tongues. But there is this, this struggle between, you know, what's more important, you know, busting a nut or actually taking her in. But I don't know how he would arrest her anyway, because I'm assuming she is typically stronger. She's like a combat robot. Oh, I say I keep saying robot. You know what I mean? Yeah. She was bred combat for... model. Yeah. There, there we go. But like, how are you going to drag her? I don't even feel like there's a world outside of this building, right? Like this is the entire universe right here. It's a, a hotel that's that composes of a hallway with two turns and like seven doors. 
And I like that about it. I mean, in that way, you made the the cafe flesh comparison earlier, but it kind of reminds me of that, where in that movie, it feels like cafe flesh is the world and outside of it is just wasteland. At least that's how it feels. That's what this is like way better than cafe flesh. <laughs> I like cafe flesh. Let let's talk about the most cafe flesh-esque scene, which is when she like goes into the nightclub or whatever it is to and, and the guy tries to pick her up but she says not tonight and she the two prostitutes are pissed off because she's uh giving it away for free they say <laughs> so what do you think of this part i mean obviously i was not ready for the piss i don't think anybody could really be ready well yeah. unless unless that's like your taste i guess but like he he's like yo I got a, I got a whole lot saved up for you. And, you know, it doesn't really sound like that's what it's going to be. But I guess when you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. He's telling we her. Piss lover taking it <laughs> in the hallway as she rounds the quarter. And then she's like, oh. <laughs> and the guy pissing is like, babe, all this could be yours. <laughs> I love it. I got a kick out of this scene. I thought it was hysterical. Not not that I'm kink shaming. Just no, no, not I had me. fun with it. <laughs> Kinks are funny. Like it, people need to people need to um chill about it cuz kinks are weird and we should laugh about them. Th- that's my my two cents. But let let me see if I have this straight. So Adrian, one of Adrian's voices kind of starts committing or convincing him that all of the things he thinks he's done, the crimes he's committed, that really Jenny has done those things and is framing him for it. Do I have that right? Maybe. There's a lot going on here in like the last 10 minutes. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on is that he comes to believe that she is committing the crimes that he believes he's done. We get a whole like night breed situation here. I you're right. This does explode into chaos right here. <laughs> she goes back to him because she wants him to help her find the doctor who created her. But there are some really good lines here. He says, I should have smelled the murder in you, which I thought was fantastic. And and he also says, you're just a tenant. Don't go trying to fuck with the landlord. <laughs> <laughs> like, these are John Waters lines, right? These are beautiful lines. I love them. But when the cop starts, like, shooting everyone in the hall... And he pulls out that weird like axe thing. I don't know. I uh, it just seemed chaotic at this point. I didn't quite understand why he was bothering to shoot everybody. I mean, maybe it was the tongues talking. So it's not really Adrian anymore. It's just all tongue. I yeah. I thought he had gone like I thought the madness had just consumed him. That he'd he'd gone into just a violent rage. Yeah, he just starts uh, kicking in hotel room doors and shooting all of the uh, fetishistic uh, tenants indiscriminately. And he... there's one guy that's in like a full body cast on a bed. 
being like, what's going on there? And then he just gets shot in the face. <laughs> Which is, yeah. we're laughing, but it's sad. <laughs> yeah. It's, he's just enjoying and, himself. And it's I, I not, <laughs> it's not filmed comically. It's filmed very seriously. In fact, there were, there are moments of the film that I found really disturbing. Like when he cuts her eyelids off, we don't see it in graphic detail or anything, but just the knowledge that that's what's happening is horrifying to me. The scene where he rips that guy's teeth out, I can't take that. I've got to look away. Like those parts were truly horrifying for me. Just just like eyelids enough would be bad, but these are like augmented clit eyelids that makes it worse <laughs> but afterwards like when she's standing in the mirror with her hands over her bleeding eyes she's like psychically screaming about how she wants to feel the pain like after all of this she still can't feel pain so what would it take to get her to that point and i found that really um disturbing really powerful this idea that like, in some ways, it reminded me of Rutger Hauer at the end of Blade Runner. Like, all, all this person wants is to feel hum the humanity that's being kept from him or from her, in this case. Um, and I find that really uh, impactful. I might have missed that that aspect of the end. As my My takeaway is that she came to the conclusion that all of the the sexual urges that she was so resentful about was what was keeping her rage under wraps. Like that, that realization is what was driving her nuts because now she just wants that back and it's gone. I, I think that's there too. I, I think that both these things are, are aspects of what she's going through, but yeah, she goes after him and shoots him like a crazy person. Her eyes all uh, bugged out. Did you think her eyes looked good or stupid? It is probably the worst part of film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like there might have been a... There's also some really cool makeup effects in this movie, right? Like, especially, like, Adrian's tongues. Like, he really pulls that shit off well. Yeah. This this scene reminded me of the buggy eyes at the end of the first Mad Max. Yeah, it, it doesn't look that good. Um, no. But I also don't understand why is she, like tilting her head way back uh probably because she's blind <laughs> she's wearing prosthetics over her actual eyes and she's just kind of flailing like where she's firing is everywhere but down the hallway right <laughs> it's that a miracle this guy even gets hit <laughs> but you don't think that's a narrative you don't think there's a narrative reason for it you just think it was because the actress was wearing prosthetics i, I think it's because the actress was wearing prosthetics and and you know, for artistic reasons, she was just told to flail around because, you know, she's in a delirium over losing her partner. Because I think she sort of figures that out, uh, that the, that happened. Her partner is electrocuted, by the way, and not for fun, for like for bad, because <laughs> because Adrian um, lets the water run out. He stops us. He stops a sink up because he doesn't have a credit card for the shower. <laughs> and then yeah. the sink overflows, wets the carpet, and then apparently, when you're linked to the to the to cyberspace, you are on an electric current and you get electrocuted. So, yeah. uh, I was kind of expecting her to become some sort of like ghost in the machine in his head. 
but that doesn't happen. You know, we should probably talk about that briefly. She goes through cyberspace and manages to get into Adrian's head as he is pursuing to murder her. And uh, yeah, she's just gone after she's electrocuted. She doesn't have her consciousness like uploaded to the cloud or anything. No, but I do think it's so the the way we see cyberspace, you know, like in the Matrix, we see all that code running down the screen in green. In this movie, we see a bunch of little like porn snippets, um, like a bunch of, I don't know, Pornhub ads popping up. Yeah, it's and, a bunch of ads. And it actually everywhere. Oh, my God. Even when they pull up like the government documentation, the identities, there's ads on that. <laughs> But how but how prophetic is this in 1999? Uh, unfortunately, too too real. Right. Like the the internet has become a bombardment of ads and it there are there is an overwhelming sexual component to it. So yeah, I think this is really um prophetic. And I just have before we get off at the crazy shooting scene, I have to mention that the music during that scene is fantastic. There's like cool avant-garde percussion going on. I don't know who's playing it, um, but it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, all all of the music is very atmospheric. It, it really puts you in the 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 right mindset for what is being put in front of you. <laughs> So the music, according to IMDb, is by two groups, Cerebellium and Greek Messiah. So I would have to look up those groups because I've never heard of either. Oh, Greek Messiah was also the composer for Shattered Dead. But anyhow, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get to final thoughts? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, why don't you give final thoughts and a rating out of four? So 16 tongues. Uh I I didn't quite enjoy it as much as Shatter Dead, but there's still a lot here. Um that that's that's worth seeing. Uh this this isn't going to this isn't gonna make me rethink my worldview on like certain you know g- government and civilization institutions that uh that Shatter Dead made me question, but this is still like a really interesting like art house cyberpunk film and and really when you think about art house films it, they typically aren't set in the future because of um you know budgetary limitations or um the ability to be able to display things in the future but i think they kind of get by that really well here it sure there are some effects that can look better but consider the medium that you're watching i'm still impressed that the script feels like it was written probably like 15, 20 years ahead of when it was actually finished. Uh, it's just kind of astounding to me that you have like a, a like a lesbian power couple ingrained in like different like technological fields just trying to like make the best of this uh, this like brutal fucking world that the scooter has created here. This is this is kind of a hard one to rate for me. But I feel like the the only things I really I really want to dig on is I think there's an over reliance on voiceovers, and it, at times when when characters were supposed to be upset or angry for some reason the acting just didn't land for me. It, it didn't work. Like especially the scene where um, Adrian is is uh, interrogating and eventually murdering uh, Alex's brother. 
Uh, for some reason, uh, it just that's the whole scene fell flat. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. But but everything else uh, was, was, you know, acting was at least passable. I think uh, Ginny did a really good job um, portraying this uh, bizarre assassin sex clone product. It's a character that I you know I'm not going to forget anytime soon. Uh, e- even with the even if you were to neglect the uh, specific augments that she uh, was gifted by the script, it, you really have to approach this as a very experimental film, right? Like I don't I don't really see how else you can really try to parse it because there's uh, especially when it comes to Adrian's character, there's just so much that just doesn't make sense it's all just there for like artistic flash it's there to make you think about like like nonsense science right like having tongues implanted in your body somehow makes you have multiple personalities uh but, but you're not here for that you know everything said i think this this is like probably like two and a half stars for me like uh there, there's a lot i'm gonna remember about this film God, but it feels like again. I think I said this with Shattered Dead too. It feels so weird to try to like even drop a star rating for something like this because it's just so out there, right? Like it's it doesn't feel like it's trying to be like a traditional viewing experience. It's more of like a like a porthole into a a bizarre techno dream. And and how are you really supposed to rate that? Like after seeing this and Shatter Dead, and I'm excited to watch Scooter's short films that are on the the Blu-ray for uh, for um, Sixteen Tongues. I just haven't had a chance yet, and I also haven't listened to the director's commentary. So I'm sure there's a lot of like insight on the disc that I haven't gotten to yet. But I kind of wanted to record this before getting into any of that because I wanted to record sort of my raw thoughts about the film. And what I like most about this film is what I also liked the most about Shatter Dead, which is that it really succeeds at sucking me into a world and making me feel like I'm in that world and that it really exists, right? It might be slightly surreal. It might be slightly illogical, but it feels like a real place. And it's almost like a hypnotic state that I get into. Like the first I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of watching this movie, I was a little bit frustrated. I was having trouble getting into it. And then all of a sudden I realized that like 40 minutes had passed and I had just gotten sucked in at some point and not realized it. And that's how Shatter Dead hit me. So I really liked that. I think that's difficult for a film to do. And I give it a lot of credit, especially for such a low budget film. What this film does with visuals the world that constructs on such a low budget is really incredible. Um, the whole universe inside of this hotel with the looks of the outfits and the interiors and the porn ads everywhere and the sort of dives through erotic cyberspace, like it, this movie has its own visual language that I think is very effective. Um, the acting is fine. You know, it it is what it is for this kind of movie. I think if this movie has some failures, it's that one, I'm, some of the messaging is unclear. Like, whereas I leave Shatter Dead with a very clear, if not narrative message, an ethical one, 
like I feel like Shatter Dead has a really clear morality that I don't clearly feel in this film. So it's a little I'm a little unsure what it's saying thematically. And then the second thing um, I struggle with is in Shatter Dead, I really sympathize with the characters like they're not perfect, but I really do want them to succeed. And I'm really disturbed when they don't. In this movie, I don't care about the characters. So even when really traumatic things happen, like the girl getting her eyelids cut off or um, or the guy getting his teeth pulled out, I don't feel so connected to those characters. So it doesn't hit me as hard. So I think that that's a weakness. But um, I do want to shout out the music, especially the song over the closing credits, because... I think that they're awesome. I would love a soundtrack to this um, and to Shattered Dead. Like, give me some vinyl releases. That would be incredible. Uh, with all that said, I like this more than Leland. Um, I'm going to give it a three. I'm tempted three and a half. And, and maybe after I see it another time, it might go up because Shattered Dead did. But right now, I'm feeling a three. I might be in the same boat where maybe I just need to watch this more to appreciate it more than I already do. Right. But all right, so let's wrap it up there. Um, until next week, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Uh, Leland, any last words? Thank you for your continued support. All right, and we'll talk to you next week about uh, something Christmassy. All right, until then, goodbye, everyone.